listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest is a writer, director and producer. She's made two feature films and was born in the former Yugoslavia. Her feature film was in 2013 called LA Superheroes, a semi-biographical look at parts of her own life, and her second feature film couldn't be more different from her first. Yelena Popovich, welcome to Shoot It Now. Hello, hi. Thank you for having me. Well, as mentioned, your second feature film couldn't be more different to your first feature, which was a comedy very independently made. However, your second feature film, Man of God, is so different. And we'll talk about that very shortly. But first, I want to take a look at that earlier part of your life when filmmaking hadn't even reached your subconscious, because you're a tenacious filmmaker and from all accounts were a tenacious teenager fleeing your own country at the age of 17 to go to the US, but struck problems because your visa wasn't granted. Basically, I sort of left at the time when Yugoslavia was getting into a war, unfortunately. But I had those dreams of going one day abroad, especially because my father, who was really, really top civil engineer, and at at the time, you know, even in ex-Yugoslavia, which was, I believe, a nice and beautiful country, he had some issues with, with authorities because he didn't want to do things that were unethical. So he ended up, instead of having a, a prominent career, which uh, he deserved as one of the best civil engineers in the country, he didn't do that well. So I think that inspired me one day to leave and, and maybe head to the Western world where I could hopefully make something out of myself and help my family. So in, in 1992 or three now, I can't exactly remember when, when everything was sort of breaking apart. I was like 16, turning 17. I decided to go to Italy. And why Italy? Because uh, my original goal was to get to the United States because I was a teenager, a model, and I, I was in the competition, the look of the year, which was one of the elite's modeling agencies' uh, competitions. And that enabled girls to work in modeling industry. So as I was chosen as one of the girls, I headed into that direction. But the problem was the embassy in Belgrade, U.S. embassy was closed. So I couldn't get the visa to go straight from Belgrade to the U.S. So instead, I came to Italy to start my modeling career. And and a year later, I managed to get my uh, work permit in, in Italy, which enabled me to get visa to the U.S. a year later. And the reason I asked you that question is because of the Afghanistan with Kabul and what's happening there at the moment. It must bring back some of those memories, as we say, 17 years old, trying to escape into the US and not being granted that visa. Can you identify with that side of this unfolding tragedy of people there trying to escape? Apart from breaking my my heart, for anybody who's going through a horror, that's a very complicated uh, issue. So unfortunately, Middle East has been, I don't know for how many years, ever since I've been in the U.S., you know, there, there were so many crises and so many people have, have suffered and, and tried to escape and get to a better life. You know, may God help them to find a way because especially now, things are not looking good. So you're in New York, you're doing the modeling. At what stage do you start to think about acting and then from acting it branches into wanting to write, produce and direct? Well, pretty much I think my life had kind of led me there. 
basically you you either make it really big what i'm saying people people that really make a lot of money in that business are, are supermodels so people they're they're struggling and they're trying to break it even though i i had some nice jobs and magazines very shortly i i got tired of, of that and i started to think i headed towards los angeles and i started to think about okay well i always liked uh, acting i did i was a kid theater actor and, and as i was in la and i transitioned for some reason, I was 20 or 21. I wasn't interested in modeling anymore. I joined uh, acting school and I started to study, go for auditions. I was able to get an agency and, and, and what really was my bread and butter were uh, TV commercials, which is something that uh, for me, it was really good because when you're doing TV commercials in Los Angeles, you're protected by SAG union, which means that once you do the TV commercial, you don't have any issues about getting paid. Where in modeling, many jobs that I've done, you know, many times the agencies would say, well, sorry, you know, we, you were in this and this apartment and we can't really pay you. So that's what I'm saying. To, to make real money in modeling, you have to be on, on a very high level. You have to br break through that barrier. Mm -hmm. So what happened is I was in the U.S. and, and I was having my, my uh, work permit. I, I did something when I moved from, from um, New York to Los Angeles. I received the papers to... Uh, finalize my documents, but because I was not in, in New York and I simply uh, missed the date of like submission, I went into this whole nightmare of, of having like 18 years of being an immigrant who, who had to fight to get uh, uh, naturalized. So that, that's how that turned into something that I actually have personally experienced. It wasn't fun. It could be a long process, like I'm sure with any country. So slowly, as my life was getting tougher and tougher, you know, I was getting a little bit older, then I, then I became a single mom. Simply, life became tough and hard. And uh, even though I was going for auditions, now then I have a little bit of an accent. You know, even though I was working, I was doing TV commercials, I was getting, I was getting some parts here and there. What I really focused on was then theater work and, and studies. Where I was studying, it's a place called uh, Playhouse West. So in that process, as an artist, I started to write my own scripts. I wasn't thinking of directing back then, but it was more like write my own scripts, I can have a part in it, and that way I can have a little more prominent role and enable myself to have a, a more prominent career. So eventually, as I was, I mean, this, this might sound funny, I was told quite often that I, that I resembled this old actress, uh, Greta Garbo, and I didn't think much about it until a friend of mine who's a very good director, he's done a couple of great films, so he said, this would be a great vehicle for you, I mean... Obviously, the only way you would get to play her is if you were going to write a script about her, then you have the rights to it and stuff like that. Okay, I said, okay, well, let me look into her story. Obviously, I was going to do it only if I can relate to her story in some ways and uh, if I feel that it would make sense. And, and to be honest, when I read her biographies, I realized there were a couple of elements that I, I found interesting and I, and I dwelled into that and I, and I wrote a script about based on her life. I got as far as, you know, getting some interesting people involved, some, some big actors. But again, the, the question was, uh, when, when it came down to, to getting the movie done, because of the budget level, it's a period piece. Again, they need somebody who has the name. So, so they offered me, okay, maybe you want to sell the script and we'll get Charlie Theron or somebody to play the part. And I said, you know what? No, actually, I'm going to keep this for myself. So I, I didn't manage to, to, to get that done while I was in the U.S. But at the same time, I said, okay, well, let me, I got to make a movie. I got to do something, you know. So, so I wrote this other little story called L.A. Superheroes, which I simplified a couple of things, which was based on to my life and the life of some people that I've known. And 
well, basically what we decided to do on a very shoestring budget, you know, I got a 7D camera. We had the, we bought lights in Ikea. I got a lot of really good actors, talented actors that really believed in a project. And we, we got that film done, which was a fantastic experience. I played the lead in that movie. But then I realized that I was really good at directing and especially working with the actors, which is something that obviously I've learned uh, in my uh, theater group. And I, and I realized I was very comfortable in that and that I did a really good job. But still, acting was really good and the story was told very well. So like a lot of other filmmakers, we don't know where the next idea is, the next great piece of inspiration, where it's coming from. But it turns out that your Man of God film originated in a bookstore and you selecting a book to read. So just as another curiosity, I bought a book and that's when um, I was struck as a lightning. And I think that, that there, were, there were a lot of things in, in his story parallel to my dad, to my own personal life. I felt that the story is powerful, that has a value and it needs to be told. And I just became very passionate about getting that film off the ground. This is a really good opportunity right now to explain to our audience what this film, Man of God, is about. First of all, in, in a very surface manner, it tells the story of a man, a Greek Orthodox saint, who was a metropolitan and a bishop and who was uh, unjustly slandered and accused, anathemized, thrown out from his position, and basically prosecuted until the rest of his life because he was somebody who really cared for people. He lived what he preached. And when you're around people that love power, and that happens in, in the spheres of religion many times, he was basically a problematic figure and they needed to get rid of him. So he just ended up having a very difficult life, life full of obstacles and how he overcame all those obstacles. And at the end, because of that, he became a, a saint. You said earlier that you like working with actors. You've done acting yourself. You're an actor's director. There's no question about that. So oh, talk you. me a little bit about that whole process, because it seems to me when I watch the film that the casting is something that you really enjoyed. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. And I believe that is my strength uh, coming from, from being an actress myself and coming from a theater background. This is a period piece. This is something uh, is talking about a man. For many people, will be a man of a different culture. Yes, if, though you're watching a period piece, but to give a little bit of a modern tint so you don't, you don't pay too much attention to the surroundings, but you're focusing on a story, which brings you closer into his character, into his head. Therefore, acting was very important, had to be so truthful, and, and I took a long time to, to cast each actor because the most important thing about this kind of style of acting was to have uh, people that had the quality that the role was requiring. For example, somebody like a lead role, Ari Servitalis, he has an aura of somebody that you could believe he could be a saint. So apart from him being an incredible actor, you could believe without him saying a word that he is that character. This is how I cast my actors. They were all extremely talented, without a doubt, but the most important was they were, they were right for the part. Now, coming back to your lead, one of the things that really works so well with him is that he is able to have the weight on his shoulders. Yeah. He's also got it in his face. So he was a perfect choice. And I've got to talk about the ensemble cast as well, because it does include Mickey Rourke, 
that you're able to get into your film. Now, he's an actor I can watch in anything. There is something about his arc of a, of his background, his depths of hitting rock bottom and then mm-hmm. resurrecting himself back into acting again. He's just a great choice uh, for part of your ensemble. Yeah. So it, it just really works works well. But coming back to that lead actor, he can carry the weight so well. You could see that in his face, right? You could see that, that he was carrying a lot of load. We discussed it, Aris and I. Of course, he cannot get into Sanitarius's head 100%, and he's making a personal choices for himself to get where he needs to be. But what we discussed and what I suggested, and I feel it really worked, is that he had to feel exhausted every single time he had to have a scene, that he had to go and, and emotionally exhaust himself because that had given that, that, that look of humility on his face that was necessary for this role. So you can just imagine he took on that task, he listened to that advice, <laughs> which was good. And, and he really also physically and mentally exhausted himself before every single take and every single scene. So that's why you're having that honest feel of, of suffering and weight on, on, on his shoulder. Definitely worked, uh, Yelena, for sure. Now, did you have much time for workshopping? Because for me, it's just such a critical element, particularly when you're working with actors that are not well-known, established actors, which a lot of your cast weren't. So did you have the time to develop the workshop? No, we had no rehearsals. I was very clear with the very, and this is something that they got a little nervous about at the beginning. However, the lead actor supported me on this and he preferred working this way because for him, he didn't want to meet them before he came to the set because he wanted to have this element of surprise, which was very truthful to the story that I was telling because he would meet some of these people for the first time. So what we did, apart from a scene with the bishops at the beginning of the movie where they uh, plot a betrayal against St. Nectarius, I needed a rehearsal for that scene because I didn't want him to be just like Muppets or, 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 or typical things that we see in the movies, I wanted to give them uh, each a character. And, and for example, I, I, I told each one of them that they cannot stand each other and there was this tension in the room. So there was a direction for me that they basically did not like one another. And they, they just had to get through this conversation in order to, to gain something in their life. You know? so, so everything was set up like, uh, so apart from that one little rehearsal I needed to have because of some technical reasons, all the other actors, I've spoke to them about their part. They were very clear about what they were doing in the role. They were very clear about what the person they were interacting with meant to them on a very personal level. And therefore, there was, and I created a lot of conflict in their performance. And that's why the thing has worked without the rehearsal. Your cinematographer did a beautiful job. He's very clever with his lighting and the way that he lights faces. That was something I really noticed in this film. Even in the cave scene, he's managing to illuminate the actors really well. Also framing in a way to keep out the real world. It's always a problem with a period piece. He did that so well. So I really tip my hat off to your cinematographer, the way that it's been framed and shot. Yes. It's just done so well. No, he's, he's done an incredible job. He's done a one feature before he's done my film. You know, it's very important for a director and cinematographer to, to speak the same language. He had a very clear understanding of what I wanted. And we decided from the very beginning, we had enough time to prepare. 
And now this is what you mentioned, what kind of feel we needed and what we were going for. And because of this simple element that we were going for, because we wanted audience to focus on what was happening with the characters, not so much on the surrounding, we decided to use the ratio 1.66, which is a little bit uh, not as wide, but it gives a little more space above the head. So you're more focused on the character rather than on what's happening around the character and brings you more inside of the performance. And so that was done on purpose. And also leaving a little, little bit more space above the head of the main character. You always have this feeling that he's always searching for something higher. These are just uh, mm. some visual things that we did. And also we decided not to go obviously with black and white look, but to go somewhere in between to desaturate the color because the life of St. Nectarius was not an easy life. It was a very difficult life. So we wanted to match everything, even including with the picture, with the framing as much as we could. So again, we can be as truthful as possible to the story, to, to the emotional aspect of the story in every scene. Yeah, I think the color palette uh, really works in a really nice imaginative way. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was I like the tracking long shots when we are introduced to the blind girl. I, I didn't run a stopwatch across that, but that was quite a long one how long did that particular scene take for you to work out with your actors? Because there's extras in the background, yes, drinking tea walking, and yeah, so exactly. forth. It's a walk and well, talk. You know, listen, I can first thank to my fantastic costume designer, set designer, you know, people that, that are incredibly talented. Obviously, for a period piece, that's a key. But also blocking that scene in general, what my DP and I, and I've told that to my editor who came on the set, we many times went for long shots. We decided not to have too much of editing. So we can stay with the characters. We can stay with the story. In some instances, of course, you have scenes that you need to edit. But there were many scenes that we let them breathe. And we've done very few. On purpose, we didn't want to shoot. My, my uh, DP and I didn't even want to give an editor a chance to cut it so much. So he was on the same page. Uh, so that one particular scene, of course, was done in one take. Because I thought that this would be more interesting instead of cutting it. It would be, it would be, it'd be more film-like. I think it was about, I don't know how many takes, but it was a lot. <laughs> more than 15, I don't know, maybe 20 until, because, you know, you're dealing with people there, it's their second language. You know, they can make a mistake in the language. So, so, so this had to be done a lot of times before we got that take or, or two that, that we knew we had it. So, yes. I really enjoyed it because I like long shots. I slightly digress, but I've got a film at the moment, which we have got the last five to six days of shooting. And the whole thing deals with uh, flashbacks. We've shot all of the flashbacks mm -hmm. and uh, five or six days we're going to spend in an apartment between two actors. It's all going to be shot in a one -er for these five or six days, but mm -hmm. we get to break every time that we go to a flashback. So there's going to be a lot of one takes. As soon as we go to the flashback, then we can throw on a different size and we can work out a different technique. But I'm so looking forward to it because, you know, the one is to me, they're just very pure for the, the actor. I noticed that even a profile shot with the president and the saint in the room mm -hmm. next to the window and they're talking to each other, it's, it doesn't cut. It's just, no, it's a profile exactly. shot, but you get something 
more out of it. Even though it's profile, the no, thing is breathing. You're seeing the reactions. You're seeing the timing of the words, and it, yes. you know, just plays out more honestly. It does. It does definitely. If that, that's what I'm saying, that's what we were discussing. That these these particular scenes are exactly that they, they're more honest. You can really get into the scene, into into what's going on, and participate personally in it. Again, with some films, depends what you're trying to achieve. Uh, you need a little more cutting with this movie, and I'm sure with your film that you're talking about, that you can bring the, the story closer to the audience. And I think the other thing, when you're doing it, like you mentioned, you, you had to do it over and over again to get that very long one I think the main thing is not to panic. I think there's a lot of filmmakers that you get five or six times into it and they go, oh, no, let's just, let's just cut this up. Let's, let's figure this out in the edit. And they may have only been one more take or two more takes away yeah. from actually capturing it. No, I agree with you. But also that's also as a director, like when I'm going after something, I'm going to get it. You know, like I, I, there is an emotional value in it. There, is, there are more reasons to it. And for that scene... I mean, that was the best choice. And I didn't want to just succumb to the fact, oh, let's now, because that could be a problem. You know, you get to the editing rate later and you feel like you, you want to reshoot the scene. That, that scene had to be shot that way because otherwise it wouldn't have this magneticism. It could have been extremely plain. Director shouldn't get discouraged. You should definitely try to execute to get the best out of it. And even if it takes, I don't know, 30 takes, that's what it takes. <laughs> Well, the other thing, too, is that you're actually watching your film play out in real time because you know that there is no editing that is taking place. You are completely controlling everything about that scene because there is no snip, snip, cut, cut. Yeah, exactly. And even at the scene, I mean, there was a scene, another scene with the president, the last scene they had when, when, when he walked in and, and he said, thank you, and when he was leaving. Okay, there were a couple of cuts, but I told, and I really argued with the editor. I said, let's leave this one take. And I almost left it fully. There was a little bit of a debate. I left one or two cuts at the beginning because I was advised, but, but it's mostly one take afterwards. And that's where the magic happens, where he kind of walks closer to him and you see his shadow on, on, the, on the wall and then you see them together. And, that, and then at the end, you cut to his face when you see the emotion, but but there, were, there was something magical that happened, and I saw it when they were when they were performing. I saw it happen, and I even uh, wrote a big uh, in big letters: "Do not edit this without me." <laughs> so I'm a big fan of those moments uh, where they actually breathe and the magic happens. That's where you need to have those longer takes for that to happen. And filming locations. You filmed in Athens in Greece. Was that related to the rebate that Greece offers international film productions? Was that part of your decision-making to shoot there? The main reason was that he lived in Greece, St. Nectarius, and I felt that shooting in Greece will also give that other element of truth. We couldn't have if we had shot it somewhere else. I mean, of course, you could, you could always shoot it somewhere else, but but something about being in Greece and, and having his presence here and his spirit here, uh, I felt that it would bring that other dimension, that it would elevate the project. So that was the main reason I wanted to shoot here, but also they have some fantastic incentives and the locations were incredible. I mean, they were very authentic. So you killed two birds with one stone. Exactly. You, got the great, you got the great rebate. And yes, in terms of the, the actual location, uh, very authentic. Now, you have managed to independently raise the money for your film here, Yelena. And I'm imagining that your backers 
uh, committed to the story's positive messaging the film carries. And I, I won't ask you if any uh, church organization has been a backer, but if you have a, a film that resonates in certain corners and that helps with the funding in many ways, it, it doesn't matter where your money comes from. Mm. Um, so religious content, a distributor will be very wary of, but mm -hmm. as a double whammy, the title of Man of God probably, I'm guessing, makes a distributor even more anxious. How tricky for you as the producer, and this is with your producer's hat mm -hmm. on, has distribution for the film been because of those two things? This is something that I saw when I read a, a book. I saw there was a potential in this film, also on the commercial level. Why? Because, because of this, there are two types of movies that people usually make about faith or related to faith. There are either films, and let's put Passion of Christ on the side now, but I'm, I would say more of a propaganda. You know, they're trying to persuade somebody to do something. And then when you do that, then you don't have much truth in it. And therefore, your audience cannot really get as affected. So then you only can cater to the audience that agrees with your point of view, uh, which are faith-based films. They do very well. You know, they have their, their embedded audience, but that's not what I was interested in. What interested me in this story was that this story has the faith-based quality. There is embedded audience there, but I can tell a very truthful story and make the film beautifully and in an artistic manner. Then it can appeal also, just focus on the human side of his character that can appeal also to the mainstream audience. So I felt that there was an opening there. So, that, so, so then you have like, like one kind of films, which I mentioned right now, people making, or there's another type of a film. And forgive me for saying this, but it's true. Uh, it doesn't have to be a fantastic movie, but it talks, basically portrays the church and God in, in a terrible way. Then you can also get critically acclaimed. So, so what I wanted to do here is to go in the middle and to tell the truth, not to, not to have one or the other side of propaganda. And this is where I saw a value. I saw a value that I felt that people could relate to the story, that there is an appetite there for positive stories, for stories that uplift people, even stories that have the element of faith, but they're done not in a way to promote religion, which is not what I was doing at all, but to tell an honest story and to transmit this message of love and forgiveness onto the audience. And I felt there was a strong commercial value in that and and even though distributors initially cannot see that they're more like oh okay we, we had our, our international sales agent pure flicks entertainment from us but even uh, the gentleman who's selling the movie says well you made a faith-based film but this is like an high-end art house faith-based film which is unusual they, they don't usually make them so even he saw there was a potential to cross over so it took a little while for to convince the distributors you know, we got to some festivals, we got some awards, and they knew they had embedded audience. Film premiered like three days ago here in Greece. It so far has broken all the records of the attendance since the pandemic. And I'm not talking about uh, against all the studio pictures and not people that go to church. They are not interested in that subject because uh, the way film was positioned to the audience. We've managed to sign the, or, or at least in the middle of signing the deals with, uh, with a lot of territories, including Australia. We are closing the deals with Italy, the whole of South America, including Brazil, France, New Zealand, and we're going to be dealing with the U.S. and Canada, where we're getting a lot of uh, calls from the exhibitors, from the actual theater exhibitors. They're getting phone calls from people who are willing to watch this movie. 
Well, I'm glad to hear that you're getting some success as far as distribution for the film. And it probably wouldn't have hurt when you won the, I think it was the Moscow Film Festival, the Audience Award for Best Feature Film. Was that, is that yes, correct? That's correct. By the way, we're going to have a huge distribution in Russia. I forgot about it. On uh, October 14th, the film will show in theaters there everywhere. In the Russia, the whole Eastern Europe. So yes, that, that helped a lot, you know, because uh, we, we got into the main competition of a really prestigious film festival and we took an audience award. So, so that, that was the beginning of the journey. And now we are slowly going to participate in different film festivals. There's some in Italy, there are a couple of more in the US and the film is getting some traction that way as well, which is also helping on all fronts. Now, having Mickey Rourke, just in terms of working with Mickey Rourke, what was that experience like? Uh, that was an incredible experience. It uh, has given me a lot of confidence, and I've learned a lot from working with him. I went after Mickey Rourke for this particular role, for the role of the paralyzed man. Uh, gets up and walks at the end. If you're going to do that truthfully, then obviously you, you're going to have to have an actor who is able to go to very honest, deep places in his personal life <laughs> to be able to portray that scene. But also something that I knew about Mickey. Mickey is, uh, is an interesting character, as you have mentioned. But regardless of his life and whether it was up and down uh, many times, he's an incredible guy and, and he has a lot of faith. And I remember I've seen uh, an interview that he's given once and it was very touchy that he said that if it wasn't for his faith, he would have probably ended his life a long time ago. So now when you hear something like that, you understand the the pain and suffering that this, this, this human being must have been dealing with, right? But there is this something that he holds on, holds on to. So a person like that was a perfect cast for the role that I, that I had written of a paralyzed man because he carries the weight on, on the, of this world on his shoulder. You can see on his face the amount of suffering that, that he actually has. And with the ability of his acting, uh, he was obviously able to go to that place where he was very honest. And the result is on the screen. And I think he's, this is, he's at, at his best in this role. And he's very, uh, he's, you know, he's, he's got so much depth. A lot of heart. Heart, so much heart. He, he mm -hmm. doesn't care about the BS, about everything that goes on in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He looks for particular roles that resonates with him. So it doesn't surprise me that you were able to, you know, talk him to coming to Greece to, to shoot. Yes, that was amazing. He actually, when he read the script, he was like, he identified with this role. It was very personal to him. And I must tell you, this is what, to answer your question, how was it working with him? It was incredible to see him arrive in Greece and to bring pictures of his brother who passed away when he was very young, because he understood that uh, to go where he needed to go to give me what I needed in that scene. So he was willing to go all the way, and, and it, was, it was really powerful. He basically relived the whole moment that day when, when he had to tell his brother goodbye. And it was something incredible, you know. And uh, it was one take because he obviously couldn't go through that more than one time. And I made it clear to my director of photography. I told him what to do. I, everybody knew it was going to be one take. And he just, he went all the way. You know, he really... I mean, I'm so grateful to see that he was willing to do that, to do that for my film and, and, and to see that kind of dedication to the work, of, uh, to his craft. I mean, he's a true artist. And no wonder he says that, uh, what he says, he said, I, I've, I've, uh, I really like my work and he enjoys when he's challenged, when he's given roles that he can really do magic with, you know, and I wish more people would uh, offer him those roles because uh, he's really incredible.
And how long did it take you to shoot this film, Yelena, and what did you shoot it on? Okay, it took us seven weeks. The principal photography lasted in whole seven weeks. And we shot it on Alexa. And what's next? What's coming up next for you? Well, I, as I said, I wrote a couple of scripts before I wrote this one. And one of them was The, the Life of Greta Garbo. And even though that uh, it's called Loveless, and even though that was sort of written as a vehicle for my acting career, I have decided after making this film that I feel really comfortable in a director's chair. And I'm really looking forward at um, directing somebody else in that role. And uh, there's also a couple of other projects on, on Horizon. One of them is also the script that I haven't written. It's a story called Dead Serious and uh, deals with the domestic violence. So different subjects, you know. So hopefully I'll manage to get them off the ground and, uh, and uh, you'll be able to see more of my work. Yelena, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us on the podcast today. And it very nearly didn't happen. I should let the audience know that yesterday we tried to record this but ran into some technical issues, which you weren't to blame, nor was I. And it probably speaks to your personality. You're very determined. And in this case, you didn't want to give up on the podcast. So thank you for that. Thanks for coming on to Shoot It Now. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really, I really enjoyed it myself and I appreciate it. And yes, again, one cannot give up, right? We have to have a positive outlook, <laughs> especially if you're going to be a movie director, you better, you better have faith and, and, and you better think positive or, or it's going to be very difficult. <laughs> You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.